0: Hello. Welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 12, Ichigo. In the last episode, I explained in some depth what the communists were doing through the middle phases of the war with Japan. I also examined the so-called Second United Front between the nationalists and the communists. Its purposes, of course, was mainly to resist the Japanese in China. Specifically, I looked at the respective roles of each party, their issues with the front, whether or not it was a mere illusion, that is, whether the front was a mere illusion, whether or not it worked to better resist the Japanese. Finally, I talked about the early alliances that the nationalists had formed with other nations, At the start of the Second World War. In this episode, I have touched on some of the early specifics of the Second World War. I will pick up on those in this episode and in future episodes. For now, I do not want the history to drift too far from the war against Japan. But I have reached a point where both wars, the one in China against Japan and the greater world war, merge to become one. In other words, by 1942, what China was doing with Japan was material to the greater world war. With that in mind, in this episode, I will explain the Japanese efforts to consolidate their gains in China. We will see the Japanese attempt to pacify China. I will end this episode with Operation Ichigo, the large Japanese offensive in 1944 that brought devastating consequences. Japan had planned to consolidate their gains in China, and in late 1939 and through 1940, that effort began. Look at the consolidation that Japan was doing as pacification. It was an effort by Japan to exploit and control the territory and resources she had conquered in China. By the time of the more recent hostilities between the nationalists and the CCP had ended, Japan's efforts to pacify China really began in earnest. Japan knew it had a problem. They knew they had only marginal, and in some cases, no control over the areas behind their military lines. They also knew these areas would need some order and control quickly, or all would be lost. So they imposed a system to consolidate or pacify. It would begin with northern China first. Their plan called for a sweeping out and clearing an area, then setting up a strong point and interconnecting these strong points to others' strong points to enforce and support each other. The Japanese Northern China Army would be responsible for this. Once those regions were pacified, they would push it out further and further, expanding the areas under their control. Wash, rinse, repeat. In doing all this, the Japanese deployed nearly 150,000 troops. Their approach toward pacification, however, was different for central China there they used the china expeditionary army a much larger force was deployed maybe as much as a half a million troops and then another 160,000 troops in southern china the pacification effort in china in central china rather did not begin until 1941 the efforts as i stated were different than those used than those used in northern China. In central China, they focused the pacification campaign only in areas that were hotbeds of resistance, and other strategic areas. Obviously, the pacification effort required massive manpower and resources. By 1943, much of China, despite Japan's efforts were Not pacified. The pacification campaigns did, however, destroy whatever was left of the united front of the nationalists and the communists. Unlike World War I, China had a direct role in World War II. Her stakes, if you will, were also higher. China was fighting for her survival. At the same time China was resisting Japan, she was also fighting internally with her Chinese communist countrymen. Moreover, Japan was an Axis member during the World War and a major target by the Western powers, particularly the United States, after the 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor. At the start of the Pacific War in World War II, Japan occupied Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Burma, and other parts of Southeast Asia. For a while, China was cut off from the sea. The only available routes to China were by land and air over the Himalayas or through Russia. So, by then, the fate of China largely rested on her Anglo-Alliances. alliances The irony for China was that it also meant her role was greatly diminished. We will see that reality play out as we get into World War II further. While the fate of Japan depended on the Pacific War by the Western Allies, it also hinged on what success the Chinese were having in her war with Japan. Yet, it is interesting to point out here, None of the Western allies, at least in the beginning of the World War II Pacific campaigns, had a plan for China on how it could defeat Japan. Certainly, at a minimum, China had valiantly resisted Japan. She took the full brunt of the Japanese assault. The resistance would give the allies valuable time in the Pacific, It was encouraging to Chiang Kai-shek that the Americans refused to concede to Japan even after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. To Chiang Kai-shek, that meant the Allies were not planning to throw China under the bus, so to speak. The Chinese, beside the fight for their survival, wanted to have a voice at the table after the World War. A strong China would act as a counterbalance against Japan. At the start of 1943, the Allies signed new treaties with China, largely at the urging of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Allies officially relinquished extraterritoriality in China. But these were nothing more than symbolic gestures to show their support and encouragement to the Chinese and to counter Japanese propaganda at that time, suggesting the Allies did not really care about China. Also, the Allies wanted to include China in conferences about reshaping the Asia-Pacific region after the war. First in Moscow in October 1943, China, the U.S., England, and Russia met to mutually pledge their commitment to prosecute the world war then in Cairo, Egypt, China, the US and England in November 1943 met again to outline their plans to deal with Japan those plans including reseeding Manchuria, Taiwan and Korea after the war the Chinese were of course ecstatic Chiang Kai-shek was receiving respect and made a partner in in post-World War Asia-Pacific matters. Unfortunately, as we shall learn later, the Cairo Conference was the high point in Anglo-Chinese collaboration and cooperation. Clearly, After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the Sino-Japanese War was joined with the World War. For most of 1942, the United States was busy in defense against Japan. By 1943, however, the Americans began to recognize China's war as a benefit in the United States' war against Japan. The United States formally recognized the nationalists in China and Chiang Kai-shek as their leader. Before island hopping became the United States' chief strategy in the Pacific, it had established land bases in Burma, India, and China. General Joseph Stilwell was the American commander. Franklin Delano Rosa was adamant about including China as one of the big four nations in their alliance over strong objections from Winston Churchill. Since the start of the Japanese war efforts into China, Japan had been planning to create a land route north to south through China. That goal became ever more imperative with the sea routes being cut off from Japanese use. Japan wanted an alternative route not requiring as much sea exposure from which she could move materials, supplies, and personnel from Korea to Hanoi. Japan was also, by 1943, worrying about the American aerial attacks coming from American airfields in Southeast China. Finding and destroying these airfields, from which the iconic Flying Tigers were having an impact on Japanese forces, was imperative as well. With that as the general backdrop, Operation Ichigo began in April 1944. The name Ichigo is a Japanese word meaning first. The operation lasted from April 1944 to December of the same year. And, giving away the conclusion, I suppose, it would be a true visible setback and the beginning of the end of the Nationalists in China. But I'm getting too far ahead of the story. Let me talk about the operation. The enormity and swiftness of the operation were impressive it certainly scared the Allies. At the start of the Ichigo campaign, the Allies were unsure what Japan was up to. The Allies immediately removed their diplomats, afraid the Japanese would take over China. In the campaign, the Japanese used up to 1.5 million troops, either Japanese or puppet auxiliary forces, mercenary forces. From its beginning, Japan focused on destroying the best forces the nationalists had, and the Chinese were quickly overwhelmed. By the fall of 1944, the north-south route had been established. That then allowed the Japanese to go after the American airfields, Those airfields were where General Claire Chenault launched the well-known Flying Tigers raids against Japanese forces in China. By November of 1944, Japan had successfully destroyed those air bases and had carved a land path from Mukden in northeast China to Hanoi in Vietnam. From there, the Japanese moved westward, seemingly Unstoppable. Then the Japanese abruptly stopped. Their advance stopped in early December. They had achieved their goals. The Japanese losses from Operation Ichigo were dwarfed compared to those of the Nationalists. At a minimum, the Nationalists lost 300,000 combat troops. It was probably closer to a half a million. For Japan, the operation cost them around 100,000 troops. Staggering losses by any measurement you choose to use. The Nationalist losses, of course, were shocking. Furthermore, they had allowed Japan to split the country in half, East from West. One-fourth of China's factories were destroyed in the operation. Civilian casualties and property loss, equally enormous. Without question, the Ichigo campaign delivered a devastating defeat to the nationalists. It exposed them to the world that their condition had so badly deteriorated not just from the Ichigo campaign, but from the entire seven-year war with Japan. The nationalists had to take the full blame for the losses. The only real winners, ultimately, in the Japanese war were the communists. The losses to the Nationalist forces during the war with Japan would have grave and large consequences, as I will get into in later episodes. One sad reality. It was observed then that from maybe 1942 onward, the Nationalists had lost their desire to resist keep in mind the armed forces were the foundation of the nationalist political power. On the other hand, bear in mind that the nationalists did manage to keep the Japanese armed forces busy despite the nationalist losses or failures. China alone forced Japan to keep well over one million of its military forces in China during the world war. That had to be a great contribution to the Allies' war effort. And even though the Nationalists failed, they did fight heroically. General Stilwell, you remember him, saw the Ichigo operation as an opportunity to further his continued attempts to gain full control of the Chinese armed forces. A subject I will get into in more detail in the next episode. I will leave that subject for now, but I want to say that Chong Kai-shek was deeply offended by Stilwell's request or desire, and that eventually led to his, or General Stilwell's, replacement. Okay, I will leave it there for now. In the next episode, Japan surrenders and ends World War II and the Sino-Japanese Conflict. Before I get into the crucial moment of that event, I will share a lot of the international strategy and designs for post-war China, Japan, and the Asia-Pacific area. The role of the communists in China becomes more focused as well. I will talk about all of that and more next time. So I thank you. And as always, it has been a pleasure.